The following audio content is a talk given at the Inn, a college ministry of University Presbyterian Church in Seattle, Washington. For more information, please visit our website at www.upc.org forward slash university. We invite you to join us each Tuesday at 9 p.m. on the corner of 47th and 16th in Seattle's U District. My name is Ryan Church, one of the guys on staff here at UPC, and just thrilled that you were able to find some time to join us here uh, Thanksgiving week, uh, quickly getting to the end of the quarter to, to let you know uh, next week is the, the last official in of the quarter, and we will be looking, uh, finish our series in the Gospel of Mark, looking at Jesus Lives, and then the week after that... Uh, we'll have uh, kind of our Christmas celebration as a community. We'll meet down in the sanctuary. Uh, that'll start at 8 p.m. during finals week uh, so that you can get out of here and get back to your studying. But invite you uh, on December 9th to come and join us. It's going to be a great time. And uh, we'll get to sing some Christmas carols together and a wonderful time in community. Uh, I want to update you on something that I have gotten up and shared with over the past couple weeks, this thing that we were doing called the Apple Cup Challenge. And the good news is I'm not wearing, uh, I'm not wearing crimson and gray. That's good news. The bad news is that uh, the Huskies lost the Apple Cup Challenge as well. Now, here's the story. Um, and, and it's kind of a long story short type of thing, but the Huskies had a commanding lead going into Saturday um, until, a, I mean, literally, somebody wrote a check for over $7,000 on behalf of our friends uh, on the east side of the state. And, yeah, it's, it's really cool. And it turns out, dead serious, that the Cougs won by $3. And so more, they... They understood that that was enough suffering for me in and of itself. And so they said, forget about wearing the crimson, but let everybody know that the Cougs won by three bucks. So uh, that said, on the, on the other hand, I want to thank all of you that contributed for both the Inn uh, here in Seattle and the Inn at Wazoo. We raised just short of $40,000 in a month. And that is, yeah, give yourselves a hand for that. That is a, a considerable uh, contribution, so thank you for that. Uh, I want to share with you uh, something that a few years ago made the holidays tough for me. Uh, almost exactly two years ago, I, I lost my beloved grandmother. Uh, she uh, succumbed to, to, to cancer uh, right around the holidays two years ago. And in the holidays previous, uh, we would celebrate Christmas in her hotel room down here on East Lake as she received treatments at Fred Hutch and the Seattle Cancer Care Alliance. And during that time, Grandma and I got to spend countless hours uh, talking, sometimes looking back. And I love that, that even to her last days, Grandma was still looking forward. There were many times in that, that to be thankful for. But as she began to, to slip and, and this illness and the, and the cancer 
began to to take over and fill her body with with pain, it became more and more difficult for me, as it would for any loved one, to see grandma turn into somebody that really I I hadn't known. Somebody I had I had not previously known in the rest of my life. And I recall those moments leading up to the holidays that I would have done anything anything to spare her of that pain, anything to meet her in the suffering that she was experiencing in those moments. I did my best. I showed up every day. All the days that she was at University Hospital, I would visit, if only for a few minutes. But there were limitations as to what I could do in any of those moments. And I was abundantly aware of them. My intercession for my beloved grandma, somebody that that really played almost more of a motherly role for me, my intercessions could only go so far. My guess is that there are many in this room that have experienced what I'm talking about. Perhaps it's it's even abundantly clear for you as we come into this time of remembering family and friends, a time of Thanksgiving, Christmas and New Year's, time where family is on our mind, where we're far more aware of the pain and the chaos and the confusion that can be prominent at this time of year. What did Jesus do? He did something that I couldn't do. Jesus suffered and died. He suffered and died. He didn't save himself by some crazy miracle. He was betrayed by the very people he called to hang out with him, as we've seen earlier this quarter. He went to the grave. Jesus died. So what? What does it mean that Jesus didn't kind of die? He fully died. He suffered brutally before being executed in the way of the worst criminals. He died a death on the cross. Ultimately, Jesus' death on the cross shows us that there is no distance that God is unwilling to go to be in relationship with us, his people, his creation. There's no distance that he is unwilling to go to be in relationship with us. Let me pray for us as we dive into this more. Lord, help us out. Help us as we approach the cross. Help us to see this cross and know you more because of it. Show us the truth of the depth of your love. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. So much of what we've seen and what happens in this lead up to the cross is what gives this story so much weight and impact. So we're going to pick up this story after Jesus has been betrayed. You guys, many of you know the story. Jesus was betrayed first by this dude named Judas. Okay, It was prophesied. Judas gets a bad name for the whole thing. We're all kind of down on Judas. But let's not forget that there was more than just Judas. 
We remember Peter who gets a bad rap. But in in Mark 14, we're also reminded that it wasn't just Peter that betrayed Jesus, but all the others abandoned him as well. But Peter gets the bad rap because Peter has a big mouth and he says, even if all the others fall away, I will not. Jesus is then arrested and then brought before the high priest and he's charged with three things. So the Gospel of Luke tells us. He's charged with three things. One is, is trying to subvert the nation, kind of this, this whole idea of treason. Two, he opposes payment of taxes to Caesar. He's getting, he's getting charged a little bit for, for a type of tax evasion. And three, he claims to be the Christ, and stay with me here, this is, this is part of what we're going to be talking tonight. He claims to be the Christ, which is, he is saying that he is a type of king. Now, the person hearing these charges, as we come to the text, is a Roman governor named Pilate, whose primary job was to keep peace, to keep the peace of Rome. As a result, he had a rather volatile relationship with some of the Jews that we're going to be interacting with in this text. And I think this, as we come to this, I want to, I want to kind of go on record and say, I'm, I think that Pilate was, was actually at the heart, a pretty decent guy. That he was trying to do some good. I don't think that he was totally evil. It's just that he was jaded by politics and became somewhat ruthless. Most people become ruthless when they're threatened. And that's that's what we see in, in Pontius Pilate. But I do think that there is a sincerity at which he... He goes about seeking the truth. We'll come back to that. So we pick up the text at the beginning of Mark chapter 15. It says this. Very early in the morning, the chief priests with the elders, the teachers of the law, and the whole Sanhedrin reached a decision. They bound Jesus, led him away, and handed him over to Pilate. Are you the king of the Jews? asked Pilate. Yes, It is as you say, Jesus replied. The chief priests accused him of many things. So again, Pilate asked him, aren't you going to ask, answer? See how many things they are accusing you of? But Jesus made no reply and Pilate was amazed. Now, this relationship between Pilate and Jesus is an intriguing one to observe. And many have sought to to give some pretty heavy interpretation to it. In Pilate, I see a man trying to reconcile what he has heard about Jesus with what he has observed. It's interesting that Pilate never seems to question Jesus' innocence, but he's confused. His relationship with Jesus is intention and is colored by a relationship with a mob, with this crowd. I think that there is something deeply embedded in verse 2. In all those charges that I, that I just told us about, it's interesting that Mark really only tells us about one that Pilate is interested in. And that's this question around, are you the king of the Jews? That last charge. Jesus responds to Pilate's question in the affirmative. And, and go with me on this. Yes, it is as you say. 
I am who you've just said. But I think embedded in what Jesus has said is, I am that, but what you have in your mind as an idea of a king is totally opposite than the type of king I'm talking about. That in this whole idea of this guy claims to be a king, it is as you say. It is as you say, but it's totally different than you think. We see this tension develop right off the dot, right off the bat. Keep in mind that Pilate is earnestly searching. The Gospel of John shows us that Pilate is asking this question, perhaps that some of you are asking as well. What is truth? What is truth? Are you the king of the Jews? It is as you say, but it's totally different. That is to say, Pilate has got, by and large, Jesus totally wrong. He knows a little bit, and yes, you are a king, but he's making, he's making judgments based on, on other conversations that he's heard. Perhaps you've done this, or pe- perhaps you've, you've heard about people that, that maybe they, they, they call somebody that they call a friend, and then they put their cell phone in their pocket, and they sit down, and, and they call their friend on accident, and they do so right as they t- start talking some serious smack about that friend, and the whole conversation is heard on the phone. And the person learns, man, they've got me totally wrong. There's something about us that wants to be truly known. We truly want to be known for who we really are. Perhaps we don't even realize that that's a great desire of our hearts. We want to be known for who we really are. Over the past, uh, really over the past year, this past spring and summer, I was applying for my dream job. And in that process, there were three different interviews that I was a part of. And before each interview, I would go into, I would pray before these interviews and, and come to the Lord and say, Lord, help this committee to see me for who I really am, no more, no less. Let this be covered in truth. We want to be known for who we really are. I think there was part of Pilate that wanted to know who Jesus really was. Because he had the real thing in front of him. This was Jesus simply being who he was. But he's fighting all these perceptions of who a king should really be. Pilate is amazed. Then in verse 5, at Jesus' lack of fear, this, this faith, this certainty, when most people that, that, that would be charged by Pilate would be trembling in fear going, don't kill me. Yet Jesus seems to rest in the certainty of this truth that Pilate is looking for. I think it's a truth that Pilate was sincerely after, but was simply too jaded. In front of him, he had somebody simply being who he really was. But there was confusion about who that person was. As the story continues, we see Jesus continue to get rejected. 
and mocked simply for being who he is. In this story, Jesus is, is handed over and we remember that Jesus isn't faking it. That the incarnation, this whole idea of, of God coming and taking on flesh and being fully human, fully God is real. There's no way for Jesus to just kind of hit some sort of magic escape button and be out of this situation. But instead of entering into relationship with Jesus, Pilate enters into relationship with the crowd. To do so, he gives them exactly what they want in the first place, which means Jesus is beaten horrifically, flogged to show that this guy is an example. To show that Rome is large and in charge. And not just to show Jesus, the person getting beaten, but to show everybody, don't cross me up. Otherwise, this same thing will happen to you. Have you ever been made an example of? That's what's happening to Jesus right here. Has it ever been pointed out in a way that shames you? In a bit of a lighter example, I recall in, in fifth grade as... You know, and I believe in, it's actually in third grade where you learn how to write script, cursive, Danelian, whatever you want to call it. And that, that was, penmanship was not my strong suit. And I recall um, the teacher uh, holding up my paper as, as an example of how not to write in cursive. And, and I, I can say it was totally Ill- illegible. But it's still shamey. In fact, to this day, I write in, in printed block letters, and I've got the notes right here to prove it. My hand, my handwriting is terrible. That was one way I was made an example of. And frankly, it got worse in college. In the fraternity that I was in, there was this weekly ritual called Geek of the Week. And it's, my confession is that I spent a tremendous amount of time thinking, uh, thinking through all the things that I needed to do to ensure that I would not end up on the dubious Geek of the Week award winner list. And unfortunately, I ended up there far more than I care to admit. But what happens in that is somebody takes just a slice of something that actually happens and then puts their own story to it and totally exaggerates, exaggerates it into something where you're listening, they're, they're shaming you and the story gets better and better. And the whole idea is as they're making fun of you, they're trying to bait you into reacting. And the only way to make sure that you don't get Geek of the Week is to go and just, and just take it on. But they, they take a little piece of, of reality and they just blow it up. It totally makes an example out of you. It's, those are whimsical examples of it. But what's worse is when we are, we are made an example of and there's truly shame and guilt. And especially if it's not fully true. But then there's this, we begin to take it on as maybe it is my fault. Even things that perhaps are, are not our, our fault, we, we take on. If we're made an example of. That's what's happened here. Jesus does not retaliate though. We begin to get a vision of Jesus testifying to a cliche that any of us that were in Sunday school heard. And I think we so long to believe. Jesus testifying to when I am weak. I am strong. 
When we are weak, He is strong. Again, the text goes on to share with us this brutal story of Jesus being mercilessly mocked by a group of, of soldiers who are professionals in this art of torture and submission. It's basically sport for them. Because Jesus is who He is, and because He doesn't fit into this paradigm of king that they have, He's mocked. He's mocked simply for being who he is. They have a lens which they've decided to look at him. Another whimsical example that some of you have heard me share before was a few Halloweens ago, I was uh, hanging out with some friends, waiting for some trick-or-treaters. We're greeting them and, you know, the, the, there's a knock at the door and I'm like, hey, hey, I got this one. No sweat. Don't worry about it. I go to the door and expecting to hear trick or treat. And granted, I'm not in a costume, though all the kids that come to the door are. I open the door and instead of hearing trick or treat, I, the, this, this girl goes, wow, you're an awesome Harry Potter. <laughs> okay. And I am, I am normally dressed. And I'm like, Listen here, you little witch. Because she was a witch. Okay? I was being, I was, I was not being anything other than who I was. And I was being mercilessly mocked by this little witch that came to the door that didn't say trick or treat. Mocked for simply being who I am. Jesus put, I know, let me have it. Jesus Jesus has to do nothing other than be himself here. Are you the king of the Jews? It is as you say. They they put the purple robe on him and a crown of thorns. And he's mocked for simply being who he is. Let's move to the climax here of the story. Verse 25. It was the third hour when they crucified him. The written notice of the charge against him read, The king of the Jews. They crucified two robbers with him, one on his right, one on his left. Those who passed by hurled insults at him, shaking their heads, saying, So, you who are going to destroy the temple and build it in three days, come down from the cross and save yourself. In the same way, the chief priests and the teachers of the law mocked him among themselves. He saved others, they said. But he can't save himself. Let this Christ, this King of Israel, come down from the cross that we may see and believe. Those crucified with him also heaped insults on him. At the sixth hour, darkness came over the whole land until the ninth hour. And at the ninth hour, Jesus cried out in a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani. Which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why have you forgotten me? At the sixth hour, darkness came over the whole land. I already read that part. When some of those standing near heard this, they said, listen, he's calling Elijah. 
One man ran, filled a sponge with wine vinegar, put it on a stick, and offered it to Jesus to drink. Now, leave him alone. Let's see if Elijah comes to take him down, he said. With a loud cry, Jesus breathed his last. Loneliness. Jesus was alone. In my job, as I meet guys struggling with depression, pornography, substance abuse, most often it's connected to loneliness. Many of you know my wife Julie meets with with women that have eating disorders. And she's often shared that there's a degree of, of isolation embedded in that illness as well. What Jesus did was die alone, on a cross, isolated, taken from his friends, including others, women that followed him. We see Jesus alone. After being mocked, after being beaten, after confusion about who is this guy, what is his identity? All things, Jesus being who he is, in seeking to identify with his beloved creation. The story concludes. In verse 38, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. And when the centurion who stood there in front of Jesus heard his cry and saw how he died, he said, surely this man was the son of God. If we go back to the very beginning of Mark, we are told that Mark wrote these words, that these were the beginning This is the beginning of the gospel about Jesus, the Son of God. Mark's whole thesis in what we've been looking at all quarter has been to show that this guy, Jesus of Nazareth, is somebody that Mark believes to be the Son of God. And if nothing else, everything is pointed to this moment where we we find out that there's at least one person that has connected these dots that has seen what Mark is talking about in the centurion's confession. This is Jesus, the Son of God. There's something about this moment, this this dark side of the cross, this moment of Jesus' death, that everything we've talked to has pointed to. As Pilate pointed out, Jesus was different. Nobody questioned that Jesus was different. But friends, it's this cross that makes Jesus exceptional. One of the ancient confessions of the church is the Apostles' Creed. One section reads, Suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, dead, and buried. He descended into hell. In part, this This part of the confession that I just read is simply there to remind us that this is not mythology that we're talking about. Because Pilate is named, 
There's an emphasis on this really happened in the time and space of history. We know there was a guy named Pilate. We know there was a guy named Jesus in Nazareth. And this confession reminds us that what happened here is not myth. Our confession is that this happened. To boot, he didn't just kind of die. It didn't just look like he died. We affirm that Jesus on this cross really died. And when it happened, the centurion was standing at the foot of the cross saying, truly, this is the Son of God. And what he's seeing is that which has suffered, which is dead. And the confession is, this is the Son of God. Friends, my question is this. Do you believe this happened? Do you believe this happened? Do you believe that Jesus of Nazareth died? As you hear this story, as you see it played out once again, do you believe that he was the Son of God? Friends, the way you answer this question has a massive implications. Implications that we'll explore more as, as we look at the bright side of the cross next week. As we continue to wrestle with this question, I want to show us two images. Two images of, of kings. And I want to ask the question, which one would you follow? Which one would you follow? Would you follow the one on the left that would call the people that he hangs out with subjects? Would you follow the one on the right that would call the people around him friends? Would you follow the one on the left that looks as if he's got it all together, but doesn't? Or would you follow the the other one that doesn't look like he has anything together, but does? Would you follow the one on the left, regal and rich, but perhaps pretty disinterested in going to the depths that you live at? Or would you follow the one on the right that has suffered, that has been crucified and has died? Our paradigm of king has been flipped. What did Jesus do? The dark side of the cross shows us that what Jesus has done is meet us in our darkest moments as the suffering servant. The cross shows us that Jesus is the only one capable of doing this. We have this hope that if if anyone is capable of doing this, it is only Jesus. The curtain has been ripped and it has set God to be in relationship with all of us. He finds us in all these places. Because in that detail of the ripped curtain that Mark gives us, we know that God is on the loose. He's no longer contained in this holy of holies, but rather he is capable of meeting us in even the deepest 
darkest places that we may find ourselves. The cross shows us that this Jesus Christ God is literally, literally dying to be in relationship with us. Relationship with you. So as we briefly reflect before a long weekend, I want us to simply reflect on the places that Jesus is capable of meeting us. In community, let's reflect individually. I invite us to go perhaps to some of the dark or painful places in our own lives with the hopes of experiencing Jesus there. Those places where we are confused, perhaps, about our true identity. Or perhaps others are confused about our identity. Picture the places in your life that you fake it. What are you dreaming about for yourself in your life? Picture Jesus there. He can go there. Where do you feel beat up, wounded, hurt? Picture the cross. Jesus is there. Where do you feel ashamed, mocked? Where are you being judged, perhaps by yourself, perhaps by others? Where are you being judged as not good enough? Jesus can meet you there. Where do you feel totally alone? What is the thing that you are convinced that if anybody knew this about you, they'd change their minds about you? What is a secret that you're dying to tell? Friends, Jesus has died to be there with you. Trust him and rest in his arms that are open on the cross. They show us the arms of a God that is willing to receive us in loving relationship. There is no depth, no depth that can, that can keep, remove us from God's desire to be with us. There is no place we can find where God will give up on us. The cross stands to show us one capable of meeting us in the places that I wish I could have met my grandma. Those places of pain and suffering. And what grandma showed me in her last days was in everybody else's inability to meet her in the place that she was at. I saw my grandma's faith grow as she began to receive all the more the only one that could meet her in the great depth that she found herself in the days leading up to her death. Only Jesus could. In my own life, the turning point in my faith was coming across the words of the Apostle Paul that reminded me 
that God is with me and there's absolutely nothing that can change that. The words of Romans 8, 38, 39. For I am convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future nor any powers, neither height nor depth nor anything else in all of creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Friends, the cross reminds us there is nothing that can separate us from Christ Jesus our Lord. Let's pray. Lord, help us to know, to rest in the assurance that you are with us. To rest in the promise that you will never leave us nor forsake us. That, Lord, above all, you love your people. You love us. And that you call us into relationship with you. Lord, this Thanksgiving, may we know that truth even that much more. Just a little bit more in our lives. Guide us as we go from this place. In Christ's name, amen.